Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies. My name is Sarah Bramau Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I recently spoke with Zachary Howlett about his new book, Meritocracy and Its Discontents Anxiety and the National College Entrance Exam in China. And this is a book all about the Gaokao, the National College Entrance Examination in China, an exam that some 9 million high school seniors take every year, hoping to wind up at a top tier university and in turn, at least so rural students hope with a path to a future urban modern lifestyle. There's a lot riding on this exam for students who take it. It is a consequential moment in their lives, but it's also a chancy moment. There's no guarantee, no matter how hard you study, that you're going to do well on it. And it's this, this combination of consequentiality and chanciness that makes it, as is explained so beautifully in this book, a fateful rite of passage. This concept is unpacked and explained in much more detail, both in the book and in my conversation with Zachary Howlett that follows this. But I just want to note here that even if just based on this little short description, you listener were thinking that this combination of consequentiality and chanciness sounds familiar, that, you know, things like weddings or initiations or other standardized examinations, maybe even gambling might also count as a fateful rite of passage, then, you know, that's kind of the point, listener. This is a concept that applies to other times and places. It isn't just applicable to the Gaokao. And that's really the spirit in which, at least I think, this book was written. If you are a scholar of China, then there is, of course, a lot that you're going to take from this book. But if you are an educator, if you're someone who's interested in meritocracy, if you're you know, thinking of yourself as a more general reader, then you should definitely seek this out. You definitely don't have to be familiar with contemporary China or Chinese history to read this book. And if you aren't familiar with the Gaokao or with what standardized testing involves, then this is a great place to start because this is a fascinating deep dive based on Zachary Howlett's fieldwork This book is filled with stories of worried students and even more worried head teachers chastising parents and battling administrators. Through them and through all the intimate case stories and studies in this book, you will learn so much about the Gaokao, about fateful rites of passage, about meritocracy, ways of thinking about education. And I should also note that if you had to take a giant standardized exam at the end of your high school education, that you had to spend years preparing for, like I did, then you will probably also finish this book as I did, learning a lot about yourself. So with that, um, I hope you seek this book out, and I hope that you enjoy the conversation that follows. I'm here today with Zachary Howlett to talk about his new book, Meritocracy and Its Discontents, Anxiety and the National College Entrance Exam in China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Zach, and thank you for taking the time out of your summer to talk to me today about your book. Thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, It's really an honor and a privilege. I'm really grateful. No, uh, thank you. Um, So let's (laughs) get into the meat of your book. So this book is about um, the National College Entrance Examination in China, the exam that 
millions of high school seniors in China take, commonly known as the you know high exam, the Gaokao. So, but I'm guessing that you did not personally take it. So I'm sort of curious as to how you came to know about it and how you came to work on it. Uh, yes, um, I have not taken the Gaokao. Uh, I'm a U.S. citizen, and I um, traveled to China first uh, in the late, very late 1990s after college, uh, and I spent several years there and uh, working as an English teacher, uh, mainly in uh, joint venture companies, but also um, in Wenzhou in a in a medical college. And I just met a lot of people who had transformed their fates through the Gaokao. And I was very interested in how education uh, can achieve social change and in social inequality and these topics. And um, when I um, went back to graduate school with a topic in hand, um, I actually changed my topic along the way. But uh, I was really looking looking at at a few criteria, and one was uh, historical resonance. That's something that, that resonates historically in China's uh, long durée history, and something that is meaningful to people in China, and uh, something that uh, addresses directly social inequality, and something that um, is important to people beyond China. So that's that's how I settled on this test, because of course the cultural and historical continuities with the um, the imperial civil exams in China uh, were um, really salient and uh, many other aspects. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned there's social inequality, and that's something that I think is mm. going to come up and we're going to come back to. Uh, but you okay. also touched on being in China. Um, and this book, as you say in the book, is primarily based on your own field work in China on two years of immersion in Chinese high schools. And as you say in the book, you learned about the Gaokao by interacting directly with students, teachers, administrators, and officials. And throughout the course of your book, we get to see and meet some of these students, teachers, administrators, and officials as you worked as a volunteer teacher at schools in three different sites. So you worked in quite a large site, a coastal metropolis. Um, You described in the book as having a population around 4 million, a backwater prefectural county, population 700,000, and a rural country seat, population Mm -hmm. 80,000. And these three different sites, as you sort of lay out in the book, are particularly important in that they are so diverse. As you say in the book, they form a representative cross-section of the rural-urban hierarchy. And this really matters um, when it comes to social inequality, because as we see in the book, how the Gaokao is experienced and understood and how heavily the odds of success are stacked for or against students really seems to depend quite a bit on, you know, how rural or urban, you know, the place in which they are is. Um, So could you give a sense of what your field work was like, but in particular, how it sort of differed in the locations that you were in? My PhD supervisor, um, Steve Sangram was a student of, uh, of, of G. William Skinner, um, B. Bill Skinner, uh, who China uh, historians really draw upon a lot. Um, but Skinner was an anthropologist and um, his work in China anthropology um, has, its influence has sort of waned a bit. And I, I, I was very influenced by uh, his work, which 
deals with market systems, with describing rural-urban uh, continuum and the complex stratification of, of places, of central places from rural to, to urban places in China. So I wanted to um, have a sampling strategy, basically, where I could go in and look at um, how the experience of the Gaokao varied between um, uh, rural and urban places, but not look at it as a binary, look at it as a continuum. Um, and um, so, uh, as you said, I, I did field work in a major metropolis in southeast eastern um, China's Fujian province, uh, Xiamen on the coast is sort of the economic capital of, of Fujian province, and then a uh, backwater, what people locally call sort of backwater um, prefectural capital, uh, which I call in the book uh, Ningzhou. It's a, um, uh, not the real name. Uh, to kind of try to protect confidentiality, and then a uh, county seat in in of a peripheral county located located within Ingzhou Prefecture, which I call Mountain County. So I would just sort of um, commute up and down that hierarchy for the for the rural place. I really needed um, um, you know the county government to sign on, so that was a whole process of getting uh, fieldwork permission. Um, and uh, in the urban places, you know, it was. Um, mediated through the schools. And of course, I had um, research affiliation with Shaman University, which does um, a lot of research on the Gaokao, actually, and, and historical and cultural continuities with the uh, imperial exams. And so Fujian province is special because it has a very uh, robust uh, popular religion, uh, a very, um, uh, you know, uh, vibrant popular religious life. It's a sort of mix between Taoism, Buddhism, Confucianism, and popular practices. But it's very typical in other ways in having rural-urban inequality, um, high levels of rural-urban inequality, despite being a relatively wealthy province. And it sits sort of in the middle of uh, national hierarchies with respect to score and speed of reform. So it would, had both some distinctive elements and had um, uh, some special uh, characteristics. And then my my during my field work and commuting up and down the hierarchy, what I found is, of course, you know, people are trying to use the Gaokao to transform their fate, to get from rural places to urban places. And so I would meet a lot of people on the way. And so methodologically, part of what happened for me is that I found that movement up and down the hierarchy was a huge part of my method, um, that not just staying in the schools and living in the dormitories and talking to teachers and students and their parents and praying with them and that sort of thing, but actually going up and down and meeting people on my journeys and talking with them about that movement uh, because you know it's, it's really a dynamic uh, hierarchy with people sojourning back and forth all the time was a very important part of my experience. Yeah, fascinating. I love that you mentioned movement because that is so important um, in sort of some of the earlier chapters in particular, but you also sort of touched on there transforming, um, the transformation of fate. And this, I suppose, is very directly related um, to your main argument, which you sort of hit on, you lay it out really clearly um, in chapter one. Your, you know, your main point of the book is that the Galkal is a fateful rite of passage and as you put it, uh, fateful events are special for many, many reasons, but in particular because they combine um, consequentiality and chanciness. So you can prepare, you can study, you can be diligent, as diligent as you can be, but things could go wrong on test day. Um, you might not have slept well the night before. You might have been given a bad spot. The questions might not be what you prepared for. Um, things can go wrong. And you also, you know, you touch on in the book that fateful rites of passage also matter because they're kind of social, they're a sort of social occasion in which people strive to achieve social recognition by personifying high cultural values. So here's diligence um, <laughs> coming up again. 
um, you know, that test takers yes. have spent so many years cultivating. Um, so there's a lot going on with this concept, but what do listeners really need to know about this, about fateful rites of passage in order to understand the Gaokao and the functions that it plays and how important it is? Mm, thanks. So um, the, the research question I started with is, you know, how and why uh, is it that people um, continue to allow themselves to be recruited into this ideology and social practice of meritocracy in China, um, despite the uh, very high levels of, of inequality and, you know, this inequality um, along the rural urban hierarchy, but also gender inequality, um, you know, ethnic and racial inequality, um, and, and so on. Um, and, and so the score, scores vary um, in a huge amount between rural and urban places, for instance, which comes up a lot in the book. So why is it that people, despite all that inequality, um, sort of continue to have faith in the Gaokao as what they call a relatively um, fair uh, system, and then by extension, have faith in the, the moral uh, rectitude and, and sort of value of, of China's elites? Um, and, and, you know, also by extension, reconcile that failures reconcile themselves psychologically with, with not making it into the elite. And, you know, um, there's a lot of detail one can go into with that unfairness. Um, but, you know, uh, my, my short answer to that question is indeed that the exam and uh, I arrived at gradually is that it's a faithful rite of passage in which people personify high cultural virtues, including diligence, composure, um, you know, I, uh, luck, I include that luck and, and, um, uh, persistence and all these things. Um, why it matters. Um, you know, I think, there's, there's, there's a few reasons. Uh, one is that the sort of conventional way that people answer that question is through um, sociologists uh, Pierre Bourdieu's idea of misrecognition and cultural capital. That uh, you know, when one takes an examination, one prepares for it as a social being, but then when one takes the exam, you take it as an individual, and all of that social labor that was put into you um, by teachers, society, your position, um, everything that you were born with, kind of gets rinsed and transformed into a fetishized badge of individual merit, the test score. And this is a really important analysis of social inequality, but it falls short of sort of describing the complexity of uh, tests like the Gaokao um, for several reasons. You know, one is that people are aware that there's cultural capital differences and social inequality differences. Another is that it sort of flattens the idea of merit. Um, it becomes cultural capital uh, embodied in various ways, but you know we we lose sort of sight of the very rich, and diverse ways that composure, luck, persistence, diligence—you know, culturally, historically specific ways—play uh, out differently and, and could play out differently across times and places. Um, and you know, the, the the sort of magical and religious significance of the exam, which I get into in chapter six uh, specifically, um, sort of gets lost. Um, and then in this sort of dynamics. Um, approach that I'm, I'm striving for, you know, uh, gets past sort of a, a, a weakness in the structuralist Bourdieu's or approach that, that sort of uh, doesn't allow for historical and personal change and, and sort of extraordinary efforts of moral will and uh, contingencies and, and luck and all these sorts of, you know, um, random and aleatory and, and you know, contingent factors. So that was really exciting to me. So a fateful event is chancy, but it's also consequential. And there's very few things in life um, that are both. We tend to just sort of go through life. Um, if you're driving a car, it's very consequential. But as long as everyone follows the rules, it's not so chancy. If you bump into a colleague in the hallway, you know, um, uh, or you're at a party and you're talking, it's, 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 you know, it's very chancy. All kinds of things can happen, but it's not all that consequential. But, you know, these certain events in life um, where chanciness and consequentiality overlap, 
Um, this is a concept that I get from Goffman uh, and his uh, Irving Goffman, the sociologist, and his famous essay, Where the Action Is. Uh, and, you know, these are really exciting events like, um, you know, elections, um, high stakes gambles, um, job interviews, uh, you know, um, and examinations and this kind of thing. Um, and, and so I, I was really interested in looking at events. So that's another reason this matters is, is thinking about events, not just as sort of snippets of, of reality, but as something that, that, you know, can allow us to um, get at uh uh, really fundamental questions about uh, society and legitimacy, um, state society relations in China, historical continuity and change, um, gender um, and uh, inequality. Uh, so those are areas that I'm trying to contribute to in sort of East Asian studies, and but also beyond because meritocracy is something that's with us um, and examination-based meritocracy sort of across the planet. And um, I think if we can get into continuity and change, you know, there's, there's a really strong case that uh, China's uh, early modern exams influence the modernization of education across the world. And so I found China to be this really exciting place to, to look at this topic uh, because of those, those um, you know, historical resonances. Absolutely. And on the topic of sort of historical resonances, um, I don't think we're going to get really into it uh, during this conversation here, but I think something that is definitely teased out in the book is the sort of historical legacy, uh, you know, where the Gaokao comes from in terms of China's own history of these these giant exams, a civil service examination. That's sort of touched on as well in the book. So I just wanted to touch on that here just because you mentioned history. Um, that definitely comes through mm-hmm. uh, as well, even though I think most of what we're going to be talking about today is the Gaokao itself. Um, you also mentioned that, you know, the, that this particular event drew you in. Um, and in some ways, I have to imagine that it's that it would be a really great space, as you show in the book, in which to explore all these things, because the Gaokao is an exam, and we'll be talking about it as an exam, but it is something that students prepare for for so very long, and their families prepare for it, their schools prepare for it, their teachers prepare for it. It's much more than a one-day um, <laughs> singular um, events, but thank you for for um, unpacking fateful rite of passage in particular here. And this sort of serves as then the central core of your book, um, and all the sort of chapters are arranged in relationship to this, um, with each sort of taking on one aspect of this exam, um, this humongous event um, as a fateful event. Um, so chapter two, for example, really analyzes the high stakes of the exam, why it matters. And here, I think you really emphasize that parents, teachers, students see the event as, uh, see the exam as consequential because as you've already sort of touched on, they see it as their one way to migrate from a rural place to an urban place with the urban understood to be more developed, more modern, a place that better encapsulates where the nation is going. Um, But chapter three, then, and this is sort of where I want to move us to, looks at how uncertain the exam is. And this is something you've already touched on, that, you know, people, even though they are fairly cynical about the Gaokao, they're quite cynical about their chances, yet they continue to overestimate their chances. Um, And you talk about here how the Gaokao is still seen as China's only fair competition. Um, And you point out that part of the reason that people don't quite, is that don't, people don't really know what their chances are. They don't really know what the odds are. They don't know um, how bad a chance they stand. They aren't really shown quantifiable data. And you have a really fascinating 
a moment in this chapter where you talk about how when you, I think when you started your field work, you went into it hoping to obtain objective, quantifiable information. And then you realized that government offices and schools and universities were already gathering a lot of this data. They don't actually show it. So I, I don't know if I'm doing your experience justice here, but could you talk a little bit about this, about data and your own sort of either, you know, your experience with it or how people understand um, their chances based on this lack of data? So data and lack or lack thereof. Um, could you talk a little bit about this? Sure. Yes. Um, yeah. So the exam is this faithful rite of passage for people uh, strive to transform their destinies by personifying these high cultural virtues and um, you know, faithful events are, are really exciting. And, you know, I think often when people hear, oh, you worked on a standardized exam, they say, oh, that sounds pretty dry. But, but actually, if you think about kind of what we care about in the world, often it's where the action is. And this is a moment of action. And as you mentioned, you know, um, people are um, trying to uh, move up that rural urban hierarchy and achieve the white collar middle class uh, dream. Um, Chinese dream of, of living in a city. A lot of it has to do with the household registration system um, or this sort of two-tier uh, system of citizenship where people in rural areas are inferior citizens. And so the Gaokao being that sort of only fair way, only relatively fair way to transform one's status. Uh, and, you know, so chapter three, after I deal with the sort of value or consequences end of the um, equation and how that relates to people's sense of time and history, I move on to um, chapter three and this sort of uncertainty, as you said, and it was it was sort of very striking to me. I had sort of these um, ideas that I would uh, talk to high school administrators and be able to hand out questionnaires and kind of get a sense of, uh, you know, um, social backgrounds of these students and how they did on examinations and that kind of thing. And, and then, you know, sort of uh, be able to make, you know, the, the board use point about how exams reproduce social inequality and then kind of build from there. Uh, and what I found was that um, high schools already collect all that information. Uh, and then they they need to because they are really focused on transforming the fates of these kids, um, or at least trying to achieve high test scores and extract that value, which is important for promotion um, of individual teachers, but also for the, the reputation of schools and of regions um, and administrative districts. So, you know, it's a very, it's, it's like a high stakes uh, athletics, um, professional athletics uh, league, you know, where you have uh, coaches and administrators, you know, pouring over the statistics, doing the microanalysis of, um, of all the students. And, and they know quite a bit about their social backgrounds as well. And they know quite a bit about all these topics. And a lot of that information, of course, will uh, percolate up to the uh, provincial education ministry. But um, even uh, people who... Um, uh, professors at research universities who have students working as government officials in the ministry um, cannot get access to all this data. So what they have to do is ask graduate students to go around to schools and sort of beg principals individually um, and contacts, go through contacts to, to acquire as much data as possible in order to um, talk about the exam. And so it can be ironic because some of these researchers are on sort of national advisory boards about exam reform, but they don't have access to the inside data. And, um, uh, and and so um, uh, I I really realized this viscerally when I got recruited into these efforts by a professor um, who I worked with a bit at uh, at Shaman University and and he asked me to to get some data for a student of his and um, 
And so I kind of realized there was this whole politics of social connections and quantity around getting data and that it, it couldn't go through official channels often. Uh, so there's a bit of a disconnect because if you ask a lot of people in China, they'll say, look, we know the exam is very unfair. They know a lot about the national um, disparities between you know, Beijing and Shanghai, where there's very high uh, quotas for admissions for local students, protectionist quotas from big cities. Um, there's uh, you know, sort of affirmative action policies for... Um, for students uh, in rural, uh, western, poor provinces, and and people realize, you know, in broad strokes, that there's a lot of rural-urban inequality. But but where the data is sort of missing is at the granular level. Um, you know, the best schools really publish and and sort of promote their accomplishments. But then um, lower level, kind of so-called bad schools, uh, the, these schools will will not do that. Uh, so it's not really an organized conspiracy per se. Although I did. I did during my uh, field work have uh, an opp- opportunity to talk to um, some provincial education or at least provincial education related officials who got interested in my field work and wanted to have tea with me. And so I got to ask them uh, questions about um, about this kind of thing. And they were quite explicit in saying that they suppressed, um, that there was an intentional suppression of, of the uh, data because having too much data out there would quote unquote exacerbate the unfair trend. That as soon as people realized more viscerally, more, more granularly how unfair the exam is in terms of all these like local level unfairnesses, um, that they would, uh, this would just exacerbate these trends where people try to get into the best schools and so on by the houses and the best school districts. Having said that, you know, um, it's not that people are, are, are dupes or anything that by that, by any measure, this is why I'm sort of pushing back against the misrecognition hypothesis a bit because, or deuce hypothesis, because it's very important, but, but, um, you know, that's broadly sort of along the Marxian vein of false consciousness, the idea that you don't really know what's going on. And in fact, people in China, they're, they're, it's quite accurate to say, I think, for them and, and from in their worlds, you know, um, uh, that it's uh, China's, as they say, only relatively fair competition. And so there's a lot of insight and a lot of desire to kind of produce um, meritocratic uh, realities. And, and it does transform the fates of many, of many so-called dark horses. So um, I, 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 in my book, I moved away from the term false confidence and I, I uh, false consciousness, and I, which is sort of the Marxian term or the traditional one, and I, I came up with a term I call false confidence. That that there's a lot of um, uh, uh, confidence that that one might be able to change one's fate, but but sometimes it's not borne out in reality. And I must say that uh, you know, in in lower ranking schools in the countryside and in rural places. Um, uh, there's a lot of dropping out of school before um, ninth grade, which isn't co- um, which is the you know the, the compulsory phase of education lasts till ninth grade, and and these dropouts are not really reflected in government statistics, so especially in rural areas. Kids drop out, um, and um, you know there's a lot of disaffection with uh, meritocracy in China, but but still, when you get into Gaokao preparatory schools and um, and despite all the critiques, um, you know, there's still um, rising numbers of people taking the exam every year. And very, very few will get into the top, top colleges. Um, you know, uh, ironically, uh, roughly along the same magnitude of people who pass the entry-level um, civil examinations in, in the imperial era, about the same number, you know, in the, roughly in the same order of magnitude, will get into the top, top colleges that really, you know, gives them that prestige. But, but there's a lot of people getting into all kinds of colleges around 80% of people who take the Gaokao get into some kind of college, and about 50% get into um, of people who take the high school entrance examination get into high schools. So, you know, it's around, but 
you know, if you think about all the dropouts, it's probably around 30%, something like that. Um, 30, you know, percent of kids in, in China in the age cohort, maybe fewer, depending on how many really drop out, we don't know, um, getting into some kind of college. And then maybe less than 1% um, of the age cohort are getting into the top, top colleges. And then we, between the rural and urban areas, there's just these, you know, this is the stuff that's kind of hidden. But in my rural field site um, or in, in bad, quote unquote, bad schools in the city, like the high school I worked at in the city was was a so-called bad school. And there's less than um, less than 4% of students got into um, top tier high school, uh, colleges, just a top tier, not a top, top college. But whereas, you know, across Fujian, um, you know, it's more like uh, 20%. Uh, and, you know, in, in poor schools in the countryside, same thing, less, less than 1%, just a handful, we get into uh, top-tier college. So there's these really huge um, disparities that people weren't talking about, that weren't really uh, talked about as much as these national disparities, which became sort of a red herring for the, the suppression of data at the local level. I love how I said we weren't going to really touch on the historical continuities, and there we go mm. <laughs> with the historical <laughs> continuity <Awesome>. about the- <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you for laying that out. Um, and you, you know, you talked there in your answer about false confidence. Um, and I have to imagine that's very much related to um, the notion of diligence and that the idea that the Gaokao is a measure of individual, not just individual merit, but also sort of um, good moral character, which is something that you sort of touch on and get into really um, in chapter four. And you talk here in this particular chapter that the Galkao is seen as a sign of superior virtue, that in particular, you know, diligence and quality um, is something that really comes through <laughs> on the Galkao. Um, and I love the way I should add, I love the way that this chapter begins because it begins with um, a description of your day um, at one of your, at one of the schools, I believe, boarding, a place where students were boarding, and you sort of start with a description of classes starting at 7.45, but the really diligent students have been up since five. <laughs> the really diligent students mm-hmm. have been up for hours. Um, Taylor Swift got them out of bed a long time ago. Um, and you have, you start with this sort of this great um, vignette of, of students going about their day and, you know, performing diligence. Um, but I, this chapter not only talks about diligence and the idea of diligence, but examines how the rural character ideal of diligence is gendered and ethnicized, reinforcing the dominance of an urban male Han elite. Um, so there's a lot in this chapter, um, but uh, could you talk about you know either the gender or the ethnicized dimensions of diligence that come through here? Um, because it's a really fascinating um, way to approach this. Um, so I'm wondering if you could either sure. either or both. Is there a part of this you'd like to touch on? Yes, you know, and I think this is a good place to s- mention that um, there's a lot of white privilege. Uh, I mean, I'm white and uh, male and, um, you know, there's a lot of white privilege and, and male privilege as well in, in doing this kind of field work in, in China, particularly in rural areas, but, but you know, anywhere. And um, sort of being seen automatically as the... Um, sort of source of, of English, the sort of stereotypical source of English. Um, and so I, as a volunteer teacher, you know, I really tried to uh, unsettle some of those uh, assumptions and, and also, you know, create opportunities for kind of critical cultural dialogue um, around these things. And, you know, out of, out of those conversations, a lot with students, so, you know, again, like you said, in the countryside, um, 
in the boarding school, which I, I lived in when I was teaching at the boarding school. I sort of commute back and forth and spend a week there and then a week in the city and kind of go back and forth and stop along the way in the middle, um, uh, up and down the hierarchy. And in the boarding schools, you know, Taylor Swift, yes, would, would rouse people out of bed in the morning, pop songs. And, but the most diligent students were out there working already. Um, and, uh, one thing that really fascinated me was that, um, everyone with students, parents, teachers, they were pretty much, uh, in agreement that girls are more diligent than boys. So there's that gender aspect. And then, you know, there's not a lot of ethnic minorities in, in Fujian province, although there are, there's the Shodzu, um, and, um, you know, other, other sort of ethnic groups, but, but, you know, ethnic, um, Topics came up a lot in, in in geography class, and you know I had um, I had students who were ethnic minorities, and um, and so we talked about that, and and you know there's this sort of sense that um, that ethnic kids are, are 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 lazier, and so they kind of lack diligence. So um, yeah, so so really, um, chapter four, I kind of go into a lot of these sort of discourses about diligence and quality, um, quality being this sort of um, uh, protean, strange, um, uh, sort of mixture of a bunch of different moral qualities that, uh, uh, you know, moral quality and uh, physical quality and academic quality, suture, um, but these days they're calling it suyang, um, a lot in schools. And, uh, you know, that, that, uh, was more associated with urban elites, um, creativity, innovation, these sort of soft skills, um, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of um, uh, examination reforms to sort of cultivate quality, uh, starting with, um, uh, you know, textbooks, but into practices in the classroom and all of that, uh, and reducing the study burdens, burdens of, of students. But what I found was that, you know, actually middle class uh, students in the cities, they, they aren't any less diligent, of course, than the countryside students. And in many cases, what they're doing is, although there's a sort of discourse of, of students in the countryside being able to eat bitterness and, and be diligent and have possessing real diligence, whereas the students in the, they'll, they'll say the students in urban areas are sort of, have all these opportunities that we don't, they get to go to all these cramming classes and um, they're, they're, you know, attending all these academic Olympiads and so on. But, but what I found was that, you know, although these sort of academic Olympiads and musical instruments and innovation and creativity, that these were supposed to be sort of, you know, non-examination focused things that of course, uh, students in from middle class or urban backgrounds were, were sort of intentionally cultivating these things uh, with uh, a lot of sort of uh, rigor. And, um, and so it became kind of part of the uh, examination curriculum and part of this sort of overall um, or part of the examination experience. And, and it became part of all this um, diligence focused talk. Uh, so, yeah. Um, so that was, I, 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 I do sort of talk a bit about gender and, and um, chapter four, and I'm, I'm, I'm moving on sort of my second project, which I think we'll come to later about, um, you know, focusing more on gender, this, this really intriguing aspect of how um, there's this, uh, you know, historically uh, in the imperial era, of course, women weren't allowed to take exams. So um, that statistic, that sort of the numbers of, of licentiate degree holders or entry-level exam degree holders in the imperial areas was, is roughly on the same order of magnitude of elite uh, students in, in colleges today. That, that comparison is even more astounding when you consider that sort of half the population wasn't even competing. Um, so I, I try to get into some of the detail of uh, how, um, you know, despite the fact that um, uh, 
students, uh, uh, women, and, and ethnic minorities um, are, are, are sort of um, involved in this uh, discourse of diligence and, and, you know, women in particular are considered more diligent and ethnic minorities have to, you know, work very hard if, if they're going to, that they overcome, you know, the sort of racist ideas about sort of intrinsic laziness, um, but that their, their diligence is somehow inferior in both cases because um, what happens is that uh, ethnic minorities and women, um, they um, succeed in the exam, if at all, according to sort of the Han masculinist dominant narrative by memorization and not by sort of um, uh, the uh, logical, uh, they, they call it sort of logical ability to kind of solve complex problems and that kind of thing. So there's this, what happens is this creates, it leads into this um, reinforcing gender and, and racial divisions of labor in China because you um, you sort of have uh, this very gendered and, and, and racialized um, reproduction of uh, of sort of women and, and ethnic minorities and humanities disciplines uh, and fewer in STEM disciplines. Although, you know, China's doing pretty well overall in, in getting women into STEM, but 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 you see um, on the ground, particularly in, in places like Fujian, where there's a very strong sort of, um, uh, as locals say, strong uh, patriarchal um, logic at play, um, uh, you, you see this continued sort of reproduction of uh, gender and racial inequality at the national level um, and in the labor markets. Um, so yeah, that's 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 um, uh, a lot of what I deal with in, in chapter four. Um, women, I think, are really taking on a larger role in families, um, and and uh, uh, you know, brothers are often sort of what in the in the rural countryside. So what you have in China because of the one-child policy, you have a lot of investment in urban daughters as sort of the only hope. But in the countryside, um, in places like Fujian and, and where I did my field work, you have families of four or five um, children often, because even despite the one-child policy, um, families would sort of keep keep trying, basically, um, and they would keep trying to have uh, children until they, they got a son. So you have a lot of families with four, you know, four daughters and one son or some that kind of thing, uh, and then you have a lot of um, daughters who say something like, you know, I. I, my, my, my parents, my grand, grandmother always tells me, you know, if I'd been born a boy, that would be so much better. And I feel like I would have gotten more support for schooling. And um, so I have to work so hard to disobey the patriarchy. I literally said that, like, as a disobedient psychology and, and then show my worth. So sort of um, uh, achieving, achieving sort of the filial ideal of taking care of one's natal family, um, which is traditionally in Confucian families sort of Supposed to be the man's um, work, right? Uh, but but it's sort of uh, through a lot of these dynamics transforming into a more bilateral arrangement where where women are taking on more and more important roles in the family. Um, so that's another sort of contribution that I was I was trying to make in, in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned there, you know, discussions about examination reform um, and how this sort of ties in. Um, I think there's two. Two, there's two parts of this chapter, and I'm really hoping they're both from this chapter that sort of that, that I was reminded of when I was um, listening to you speak. One is you talk about um, I think it's a head teacher coming back um, from a trip to a more urban school and talking about how all of the students there have such I think it's sort of like they're they're just great. They're this head teacher is talking about how great the students are and they have you know such great quality. They're doing all of these extracurricular activities. They're excelling in all these different ways. Um, so I was reminded of that, and I was also reminded of—I'm pretty sure it's in this chapter—the line um, 
talking about examination reform, something about when pig farming is a special skill, students in rural areas are just going to excel or something, something along those lines. Yeah. Um, just talking about, you know, this, the cultivation of these special skills as um, the examinations, as, as attempts are made to shift the exam away from things that can be memorized. I'll put it that way, shifting away from memorization yeah. and what, what yeah, the repercussions yes, yeah. of that are. Yeah, I mean, piano, violin, all these things are kind of called special abilities or touch on special special skills. And an examination researcher, and she said that she said, "Well, you know, the day that we call um, pig rearing a special ability, we then we'll get more rural kids in college." Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a great. Thank you. It's a great um, uh, sort of example of uh, of what's going on. Thank you. Thank for, you. I'm, glad, I'm hoping that was from either chapter four or chapter five because chapter five yeah. looks at head teachers. Um, and we've kind of, um, these, these, these particular teachers have come up a little bit before. Um, you mentioned in this chapter that you, you came to think of these head teachers as resembling baseball coaches. And we see them in this chapter being statisticians, strategists, psychologists, leaders. Um, and there are so many moments in this chapter where you see head teachers, you know, really intervening in ways that might be foreign for, for someone who's not used to teachers doing this kind of role. Um, so for example, um, we see head teachers um, mediating conversations between parents and children and trying to, trying to, get, trying to encourage their students, trying to back up the, what the parent is saying. You have all these really fascinating you know, negotiations in which head teachers are playing a really um, important, very present role, right? You talk about head teachers going um, to visit um, the homes of their students and head teachers knowing about the homes of their students. Um, you say there's one episode in this particular chapter where we see a head teacher that we see a lot in this book, uh, Miss Ma, um, trying mm-hmm. to manage the situation of a student of hers who was doing really well until she gets a boyfriend. And then there's this sort of, and it all just goes south. Miss um, Ma calls the students' parents. The parents get involved. There's all everyone's trying to figure out how to manage the student with the boyfriend, and it you know doesn't go as well as Miss Ma would have hoped. But in any event, um, we see this chapter head teachers playing a really active and really involved role in the lives of their students. Um, so. With this, is there sort of an episode or example, either in this chapter or from another chapter, that to you really captures, you know, the role that head teachers play? Um, is there anything that really sort of sums it up for you? Um, yeah, so I, I, I went on um, a lot of home visits with head teachers, and you know, typically they would kind of go into a student's house and um, talk with the parents, and the students would be there and often kind of mortify that they're parents are talking to the teacher, but also it was a great, it was a great honor um, to have the teacher visiting. And these head teachers are um, very forceful and charismatic personalities, um, very strong. Often, often not, I mean, not all, but, but many are women. What happens is the men get kind of promoted up the hierarchy, administrative hierarchy. Um, women kind of stay as head teachers, um, again, because of a lot of the patriarchal dynamics going on there. But, um, and, 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 and everywhere. I mean, I don't mean to pick on China particularly, um, but, but, uh, but, but so it's a gender appropriate, uh, quote unquote, gender appropriate role for very successful, charismatic, strong women. And they go into the families and, and parents are often, um, you know, in, in, in urban areas, at least there's a lot of home visiting and parents often feel very honored, especially at the school that I worked in was a 
school with a lot of migrant children, um, rural to urban migrant children, and uh, children from fairly, um, you know, uh, modest backgrounds, blue-collar backgrounds. And, um, they come in and they would, um, uh, like in one case, a head teacher advised a, a girl to, um, to do well on the exam so she could take care of her mother and her little brother by, by um, going to good college and, and finding a good husband. Um, you know, in another case, a uh, head teacher told a girl to um, do better at her housework, to kind of have more of a regimen where she was washing her own clothes and not making her mother do it. A lot of filial piety, um, you know, which is a very important virtue um, also that's sort of indexed by the examination that, that these are, you know, the most obedient and filial children are the ones who do best, which of course is something that's very useful for the state um, and, and for families, for social stability. Um, so... Um, yeah, there's, there are teachers, you know, in, in, a, in a word, it's sort of the contradiction where um, they, they have to try to address uh, problems of sort of cultural capital and inequality. Um, you know, there's a lot of criticism in China and among students that teachers just focus on the students with the best scores. But, but in the um, migrant, uh, largely sort of migrant uh, worker um, high school uh, that I uh, worked at in, in Shaman, um, teachers were were really also quite interested in ameliorating inequality, uh, and they they really were committed to trying to um, help uh, uh, students from kind of less privileged backgrounds to do well in the exam. Particularly students who were motivated um, to and, and you know academic high school is voluntary in China, so there's a lot of motivated students, especially from from. I would I would say a lot of motivated students from all backgrounds, but but you know plenty from poor backgrounds, and and so teachers were interested in helping out, and so they had to kind of go into to um, to homes and try to advise parents on on improving what they called the home environment, um, and so doing this kind of intervention in a way that in I think in the United States, for instance, would be considered really like um, off bounds. Like you don't have a teacher coming in and tell you how to raise a kid uh, unless you're asking for that. In many places, at least in my experience, uh, being an American. This would be considered a tremendous um, sort of, um, uh, you know, interference, and and not that you know I'm I'm now teaching in Singapore, and, and I, I I don't mean to um, sort of make the comparison always to the to the U.S., but um, but I was interested in this um, I was interested in this uh, sort of way that teachers, uh, on the one hand, are really trying to help students um, overcome cultural capital deficits, but on the other hand. In the classroom, and especially as you get closer to the exam, um, they're trying to keep reminding students that they have their fate in their own hands, that they have the power to change their fate. So there's a contradiction there. Um, and um, that's sort of what I'm trying to unpack in Chapter 5. Uh, and, of course, as you kind of move through the book, you're getting closer and closer to the examination. So you kind of go through um, chances, you know, value, chances, um, moral quality, and now you're kind of moving up to the exam where uh, characteristics like composure um, or courage under fire became very important. So I was trying to track in chapter five what happens up to sort of the weeks before the exam and in the exam, that moment that's so um, uh, life-changing where people, um, you know, often faint or um, they um, are overcome by um, insomnia or, um, you know, trim trembling and fear and, and how they have to face that moment with a lot of courage, facing themselves almost as alien powers that they have to kind of master uh, and so a lot of weird stuff happens in the weeks before the exam. And it's sort of like maybe athletes before they go to the Olympics where, you know, the coaches are trying to keep everyone in examination shape, as they call it. Uh, 
Kalshi Zwantai. <laughs> and then they, at the same time, they're, they're you know, oh, you know, uh, best student falls in love with, with you know, another a guy in the class, uh, like a few weeks before the exam, everyone starts freaking out. That was really amazing to me. Um, this is one of the best students <laughs> in Ningjo number one high school. And um, her, her personal business became sort of affairs of state where the, you know, provincial, not the provincial, but the municipal, municipal education bureau was, um, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, asking about the best students and, and you had, you know, um, administrators you know, having to talk about the psychological state of students and teachers working with, you know, this particular student, her, her teacher, Miss Ma, was, was on the phone with her mom every day for, for over a half an hour talking about her emotional life and, um, and sort of like <laughs> prize, prize athletes before the, before the final battle, as they call it. Yeah, there's lots of talk, I mean, in this chapter in particular, but about, you know, being at like peak potential, be, you know, when, when a student is going to peak, when they're going to be ready, you can't be too early, because yeah. then you'll get tired, yes. then you'll sort of, you know, you'll lag. Very, very reminiscent of um, athletes, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, you said that we're getting closer and closer to the exam as the book goes on, right? Um, but then mm-hmm. there's sort of the, <laughs> you you know, the last chapter in some ways then, chapter six, um, I suppose in that sense is sort of the last, you know, the last attempt, the last attempt to, you know, put things in your favor. Because this chapter is titled Magic and Meritocracy. And this is sort of, um, I think this opens with uh, head teachers going to a temple to sort of, um, you know, do all they can do to try to ensure success um, for their students. And a large part of this chapter, you sort of explore how people find explanations to explain, you know, why they succeeded in the Galka or why, why they failed in luck, in fate, in divine intervention. And you point out in this chapter that much of this, the going to temples, um, to, you know, to prayer about around the Galkao, much of this is unofficially school sponsored. Um, so the temple visits that I've mentioned when, you know, um, school sponsored um, visits to temples, these are an open secret. Um, you point out that on paper, schools are not really meant to be doing these things. Uh, dabbling in religion and superstition is not what good atheist schools do. So you note that that administrators, students, and teachers try to balance the sort of front stage secular um, atheism with sort of backstage belief. Um, And you give an example here that I really loved um, about a missing door, (laughs) a door that goes missing. Um, So I was wondering if you could actually take us through this incident. Um, What happened to the door? (laughs) Why why did it have to go missing? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So that was in Ningjo number one high school. And um, the, uh, the students were buying lottery tickets uh, in the weeks before the exam, uh, because the theory being that if they, um, if they didn't win the lottery, that would mean they were building up good luck for the exam. Because um, in, in, um, in, in Chinese high schools and kind of among young people, um, there's a, a discourse around um, what they call uh, character or rinping. And um, I think it originally comes from a computer game, uh, but um, the idea is that, like throughout life, you're you're building up your your rinping or character by doing good deeds, and and, and this kind of goes back to um, a real um, kind of fundamental um, aspect of uh, Chinese popular religious belief, which is that you know good things happen to people who do good deeds, bad things happen to people who do bad things, um, whether in this life or the next, and so there's this whole idea of kind of cosmic reciprocity, um, which is um, you know, um, so so fundamental to um, 
uh, uh, Chinese um, religious um, kind of uh, concepts, but also more broadly and other, other cultural um, uh, and you know, anthropologists talked a lot about sort of reciprocity uh, and and um, and gifts and reciprocity and exchange and reciprocity. And this is this is really what's what's at the heart of this here, which is you know by by doing good deeds, one gets um, uh, good uh, karma basically. And these students they they reasoned that um, you know by 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 having lots of bad luck that they would then have good luck for the test day. And so um, what happened was that a vice principal um, was kind of on inspection. They students had posted all these lottery tickets on a classroom door, not the front door, but kind of the back door. Uh, and the head teacher, Ms. Ma, who was young and, and um, you know, relatively uh, lenient, uh, allowed them to do this. Um, but but a, uh, a vice principal kind of came through and, and, and saw it and said, oh, no, no, you can't. You can't have this here. This is, this is uh, superstition. Because, um, you know, as you mentioned, in China, this sort of uh, atheist um, or at least secular um, imagination of, um, of school's role in sort of cultivating uh, modern subjectivities is that, uh, you know, they need to tamp down on, on, on superstition, superstitious beliefs. That's sort of a holdover from, from the Maoist era and uh, continues to be um, an important aspect of education in China. And actually, schools would do what they call regular quality audits. And part of quality or moral quality is, is you know, um, issuing uh, superstitious beliefs. And so the vice president principal said, oh, no way, we can't have this. It's too obvious. And, it's, and um, so this, <laughs> the teacher agreed, of course. It's her boss. And the students um, uh, complied, and they removed the door. What they did is they, they knew that upstairs there was, in storage, there was uh, another door um, that uh, had been slightly damaged. And what they did is they exchanged the door in storage with their door with the lottery ticket so that their sort of shrine to the lottery tickets could remain intact in storage upstairs where they could visit it. And um, so they sort of complied in, 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 in uh, the letter of the law, but not the spirit. Um, but the greater irony was that I... Um, Around this time, I became aware that uh, in every classroom in the school, and in fact, in, in all the schools in the prefectural capital and in the countryside, above the front door, not the back door, but sort of the, the, the main entrance to the classroom, very inconspicuously was a small um, uh, sort of uh, uh, protective um, uh, 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 emblem, which is uh, handed out at temple. So if one visits a, a you know, powerful um, a uh, uh, very ling, a very eff- efficacious temple, um, and um, and asks uh, uh, for it. Um, one can receive these um, magic talismans, which are protective and um, encourage good luck and that kind of thing. So, so I became aware of this. Um, actually, Ms. Ma helped me understand, <laughs> um, and um, she was a really key um, sort of friend <laughs> and, and 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 helped me understand a lot of things and. Um, so the irony here was that um, the school leadership um, had uh, not only sanctioned but actually obtained these talismans for the for the school, and so they were above every classroom door. Um, the senior three, um, that is the seniors who are about to take the uh, examination, um, all had these talismans above the door. And and in fact, um, the students were aware that their teachers were and principals, um, so their vice principals and principal were going to pray for examination success for them. Uh, and they were they were told this, and and they could contribute from their class dues, um, from their own money, and it was optional for Christians, um, of whom there were quite a few, but but you know the majority were um, 
you know, of, of sort of secular slash popular religious backgrounds. And they could contribute money. And then the, the parent, the teachers, had teachers to take this money, take it to the temple, pray for examination success, and using the money to buy snacks and that kind of thing to sacrifice to the gods at the temples and then um, bring them back with the God's blessing and with the talisman above the door and the students would eat this, you know, so there was this whole popular religious kind of uh, ritual <laughs> being done. Um, but the door, the door with the lottery tickets wasn't cool. And the reason it was, it wasn't cool was it was too, uh, too obvious. Right. So you have to kind of perform your, your secular sort of modern subjectivity um, and give, give the teachers and the leadership face, you know, by doing that correctly. But, but there was a very, um, very serious business of, of, and of, enlisting the uh, help and the support of the divine um, and, and the gods to uh, assist in examination um, success. That was very important. And it wasn't important in all schools, but in, in sort of top performing schools and in the countryside, sort of where the, as they say, the emperor, um, the heaven is high and emperor is far away. They were far away from kind of central um, inspecting authorities. Um, so uh, yes, so that was, that was sort of through the incident of the door, sort of an introduction to some of the main kind of, um, insights that I had in, in chapter when I wrote um, chapter six or what I, on which I based chapter six. And uh, it's funny when I went, when I went back to the, you know, other schools and I started looking and I saw these talibans everywhere. They were very inconspicuous, but these, you know, um, lifts that, that are written and put above the doors. I'd never noticed them before. And I've been in schools for about a year at that point. And I started asking people and they said, Oh yes, yes, yes. You know, my administrator friends in, in the countryside school said, yes, we, we go, we go to um, pray for examination of success. Yes, yes. But, but who told you that? You're not supposed to know that. <laughs> who told you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you mentioned, you, mentioned, you mentioned that in the book about being one of the most common things that people asked you when you said, um, you know, do you do, do you do this? The question being, how did, how did you find out? Um, which I love, I love the door incident just because it sort of, it's, it brings a very real almost physicality to what this chapter talks about the, the, the front stage, backstage, front door, back door. Um, so that's in particular why, um, why I love it, but thank you for, for unpacking that. Thank you for that. We, the book then moves. So we've sort of, you know, the last, the last attempt to, to curry favor, to get the gods on your side, uh, moves us to a very brief epilogue that closes out your book. Um, but the epilogue starts with a bang. It, the first line is, the architects of the Gaokao face a momentous challenge. So this is sort of the chapter that talks about, you know, what is... The, the challenge to the Gaokao, what um, might prevent the Gaokao to continue to serve as a fateful rite of passage, as your book has sort of shown it to be. Uh, so as a way of sort of closing us out, I wonder if you could just touch on these challenges. What is sort of um, facing the, the architects of the Gaokao, if you like, um, as they're trying to you know, continue to maintain this um, as a fateful rite of passage? What are some of these challenges? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, well, you know, one of my, um, the same, same professor who asked me to help get data for a student um, said that Gaokao reform is a lot like trying to, um, you know, uh, fold a balloon that you push on one side and the air comes out the other side. So it's a tremendous challenge. There's so many moving parts and variables. And so um, I, have, I have just a tremendous amount of um, sympathy for, for the uh, policymakers who are trying to keep this system uh, functioning. And, and basically, 
to function as a faithful rite of passage, that means it has to be um, both consequential and, and, and chancy. And if it's chancy, that is, if it's uh, the, the results are undetermined ahead of time, then it's fair, right? That means that you can go in, you have a shot, uh, no matter what kind of background you're from. And if, if it's consequential, that that's that means it's worth it's worth taking a shot. Uh, and um, the problem is that for a lot of a lot of students from kind of less privileged backgrounds, um, it's it's sort of the rural dispossessed and and um, the urban uh, sort of precariat, uh, precarious urban uh, migrant workers. Often, you know, um, they need to persuade themselves that it's it's consequent. It's it's that they have a shot that it's chancy. And for people from wealthier backgrounds, the politics of privilege, they can um, send their kids overseas to um, to, to to take the exam um, or to go to college somewhere else. Sorry, um, that. You know, it's not so clear that the um, examination is, is all that consequential because there's other ways uh, to go. So, you know, um, every year, um, the last few years, uh, the number of people taking the exam has sort of been, at least the tendency is, is steady with a slight rise. So there's, you know, nine, nine million people um, uh, around there taking it. Um, so, you know, they seem to be successful in kind of keeping, keeping this um, uh, fateful uh, quality of the exam alive. Uh, but, um, you know, there's a lot of challenges uh, on the horizon. You have economic, uh, 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 you know, slowing of, of growth. Um, you have, uh, you know, demographic change uh, with uh, that's, you know, feeding into that with uh, uh, China um, worrying about its population expansion um, to kind of keep supplying the uh, uh, labor um, that is required to um, move over the middle income trap and join uh, the world's kind of uh, list of wealthy developed countries. Um, and you have, uh, you know, environmental uh, challenges. Um, you have automation of labor, uh, social aging, which kind of goes along with all these things. So there's all these huge challenges. They're not just Chinese, but kind of global having to do with this moment in our meritocracy that we see in different societies um, with lots of people wondering, you know, is it still worth it? Um, is, is, is playing this game still worth it? And, um, and in China right now, there's a lot of talk about what they call involution or nejun, um, where there's sort of like um, ceaseless competition among the elites for kind of scarce resources. And, and what's it really mean? Um, it's a lot of questioning about that. Uh, so where I kind of wanted to leave the book off with is, is kind of zooming out on that big picture. Um, you have a, a quite a few um, youth in China who are feeling what they say what they call lost and confused or they're, they're feeling sort of disaffected. Um, depressed about about sort of the ability to actually achieve the meritocratic dream that they were looking for, as many youth are elsewhere, educated youth. It's kind of a problem across the world. And um, if we look kind of broadly, sitting out at the historical perspective, if you look at the transition from sort of feudal societies to early modernity, um, which happened between the Tang and the and and the Ming dynasties, you know, in China about a thousand years ago, um, or in early modern Europe, with this sort of transition to um, you know, for um, uh, status based on achievements rather than on the scribe status on, on blood, uh, that that being sort of the moment where meritocracy uh, in kind of complex societies takes hold, uh, and for for various reasons. Um, and then then are we on the cusp of of another big transformation historically um, to to something else? You know, so I was sort of taking a Marxian historical lens there, um, and and wondering if um, 
uh, if we're at, at the cusp of another uh, large social transformation uh, to something that lies beyond meritocracy. But of course, to get there requires politics um, and, and shaping whatever will come out of that requires politics. So there'll be um, a series of fateful transformations that, um, that you know, we as societies um, have to uh, undergo in order to arrive at the new destination, whatever that be. Yeah, I said I, I said that it was a short epilogue, but it starts with a bang, and it's a weighty one. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you for sort of encapsulating that uh, because it it does a lot of work, um, the epilogue. But with that, this sort of closes out the book, and as such, closes out our conversation about the book. Uh, but now that you finished this book, um, this particular. <laughs> Um, event for you. What are you working on now? What is what is inspiring you currently? What is your next project? So what I, I want to thanks thanks for that. So what I want to do is to go back to the head teachers and collaborate with them. Um, head teachers are really amazing people, and they they are very dynamic, and they have an enormous kind of um, social network of former students who stay in touch with them. Uh, and so what I'm really interested in uh, right now is um, looking at uh, rural to urban educated migrant women. Uh, Many of these head teachers are uh, rural to urban uh, migrants who are very well educated, who've transformed their fates through the Gaokao. So typically in anthropology, what a lot of people in sociology, they're looking at um, migrants uh, and, and migrant women, but, but they um, aren't looking at, uh, and, and one of the big questions that's sort of motivating um, uh, discussions right now around sort of migration and, and demographic change, which is what's interesting me, is uh, sort of marriage delays. Uh, and so what, what often happens is that um, researchers are looking at marriage delays. They interview a bunch of people in the cities. And um, you know, they're, they're saying that you know, urbanites, educated urbanites, are um, delaying marriage. And um, uh, sometimes what gets lost is that a lot of these educated urbanites are people who transform their fates through education. And they maintain these. So ethnographically, if you get in and kind of unpack uh, um, the social realities, they've maintained these very close connections with the countryside. And so it's not clear that, you know, a person is sort of only living in the city, but cities have, um, in other words, cities have doubled in size over the past 20 years, many of them. And, and these people living in cities are sort of got their foot in both worlds. They're, they've got their foot in various, you know, they've got, um, they're, they've got their feet in the countryside and the city and they're kind of going up and down. And so what, what's really interesting to me is um, uh, this question of, you know, I go back to women's um, uh, uh, sort of being more diligent than men. And if you think, if you kind of zoom out and think about filial piety and, and patriarchy in China uh, being such a fundamental way that sort of value is transformed, that, that value kind of um, rises up to... Um, you know, in, in, in the social hierarchy up and becomes kind of the property of kind of uh, patriarchs in central places. Uh, but, but, but now with a sort of transition to more bilateral families with women kind of uh, uh, taking uh, more power uh, and many women choosing not to marry, um, I think what, what we have is sort of um, a, a, um, a move to, to, to sort of queer the um, old... Uh, patriarchal uh, filial piety kind of arrangements and transform them, you know, not in sort of a necessarily kind of like Western liberation rebellion way, 
but but to transform them uh, in in a kind of culturally and historically specific way into something new. And so I think that's actually when you it's an earth shaking kind of uh, potentially earth shaking transformation of power and how power works in China. Uh, and I think you've got a lot of um, uh, state officials quite quite worried about population slowing down and, and blaming it on women who often. Uh, you know, would love to get married, but but can't find uh, a, a partner, or are sort of excluded from finding the partners that they want for various reasons. Um, uh, often because uh, they can't find a a a, a, a partner who is uh, willing to have an egalitarian relationship. Um, and then low status men also who um, are cannot marry because of gender imbalances. Uh, and um, of course, um, uh, you know, the uh, heteronormative. Uh, 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 kind of um, arrangements um, in, in China um, that um, exclude gender queer people from having um, a, a, a meaningful kind of um, uh, a marriage relationship. So, um, so, so there's this whole space. Um, what I think is a sort of tremendous uh, potential for social transformation. Uh, but, but, but what, what I'm worried. So we we didn't talk a lot about chapter two, but. But there's been a lot of sort of discourse for, for a long time in China that, that the country's overpopulated and underdeveloped. And now China's pivoting very rapidly to um, trying to think of itself as underpopulated or, or needing, needing more population. Uh, and um, there's fears among women in China now that the state will come in and start forcing them to have more babies, uh, but in ways that they don't want to have more babies. So, so there's this sort of moment um, where you... Um, uh, have this tremendous kind of um, uh, uh, possibility for um, uh, social transformation uh, in really fundamental ways, um, but potential resistances. So I'm, I'm really interested in that. So in a word, it's sort of demographic change, marriage, marriage delays, education, and um, and I'm, I'm kind of working on that topic now. Go back and, and work with head teachers and talk to head teachers about you know them and their colleagues and and their marriage experiences, but also um, their their students, and kind of look at these dynamics and in a sort of snowball sampling way uh, across the rural urban hierarchy. As a reader, Zach, I have to say that I am so excited to hear you say that you're going back to head teachers because they were probably <laughs> one of my favorite parts of this book. Um, they were so they were so great to read about. They were such great, as you said, predominantly women uh, to read about in this book. Um, I think one of my favorite moments is still the head teacher who comes back from Shanghai, who's a head teacher in a more rural area. It might have been Miss Ma, who sort of says they don't know what they're talking about when they say that Shanghai is crowded. Um, <laughs> which, uh, there's so mm-hmm. many; they have so many great moments um, and are so fascinating in this book that I'm very excited to see where where you go with them next. Um, so, best of luck with. With head teachers and with uh, with your next project, it sounds fascinating. Thank you so much, and and thank you for this opportunity to to speak about my book and my work. And I'm I'm truly truly grateful to you, and um, it's really an honor and a privilege to, to 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 be here. Thank you so much. No problem. It was a real pleasure. Mm-hmm.